God's word beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9 says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with Jesus. And Jesus asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they, awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Lord, let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, Germans were faced with the difficult decisions of how they should respond to the rise of Hitler and Nazism. While some saw the benefits of Hitler's economic policies and they feared other extremist political views, they also were aware of his anti-Semitism, of his brutal intimidation tactics, and even arresting of political opponents. So some kind of turned a blind eye to some of the things they didn't like about Hitler because they enjoyed the progress their nation was incurring. Others lived in fear and secretly tried to undermine what he did and still others fled in terror because they could see that the atrocities done to others may then be done to them or done through their country. In 1939, before World War II had started, one man had the opportunity to flee. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was given the opportunity to teach theology in New York City. He went there and started teaching at Union Seminary, but after only a few weeks, he wrote to his sponsor and said, I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. So he had been a critic before, but when Bonhoeffer went back, he was more critical and he started working behind the scenes, undermining Hitler, helping Jews escape. Well, in 1943, he was arrested. And then one month before Germany was um, defeated and they declared surrender on April 9th, 1945, he was put 
to death. He gave his life for what he thought mattered, except he had really prepared for this much sooner. Some of you may be familiar with his famous work. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it he writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer had seen and realized the amazing truth of Christ, that life comes through death. That to truly live is to die to oneself. And this wasn't just Christ's teaching. As we see this morning, as we rejoice in the resurrection, it was exemplified in his life. And so here with this morning, we gather and rejoice at life in Christ. And we see that due to his resurrection, death does not have the final word. Christ's resurrection vindicates that life is found through death. Now, this was not a second chance, second t- opportunity or second plan that Jesus had as though his strategy was foiled when Judas betrayed him. And, oh, what am I going to do now? Okay, now we'll pursue resurrection. Rather, Jesus' plan from all time was that a redeemer would come who would give his life and then rise again. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see for the first time when Jesus makes this message clear to the disciples. And we see that it's not just his message, but it's a call for them, how they are to live. And then lastly, we see that this is not just his idea, but God the Father affirms Jesus in his message. If you have a bulletin, you can kind of see that outline on the back of the three things that the Messiah is going to conquer through suffering and death. Then our life comes in following through Jesus' suffering and death. And then lastly, divine affirmation of Jesus in his path of suffering. But first, in verses 18 through 22, we see that Jesus is asking his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And there's three main opinions floating around. Some say, well, he's John the Baptist, raised back from the dead. Others, he's the great prophet Elijah, who's come as Malachi 4, 5 foretold and coming to tell of the one who will come and usher in the kingdom. Others are saying, no, no, he's just some great prophet. All of these, though, are dealing with this idea that Jesus is a prophet. And for the Jews, they had this expectation due to Deuteronomy 18 that a greater prophet after Moses, but like Moses, would come. And when that one comes, Deuteronomy 18.15 says they're to listen to him. Except Jesus is not interested in opinion polls or what people are saying because he then turns in verse 20 and looks directly at his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the group and says, you are the Christ of God. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one, the one that God has put his favor on. This was foretold in many places in the Old Testament, this Messiah who could come. For example, Isaiah 61 begins by saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That idea, anointed, that's the Messiah. And yet then, Jesus says something very interesting. In verse 21, he says, Well, don't tell anyone about this. Why would Jesus not want them to know that he's the Messiah? Isn't that why he came? Well, he doesn't want them to tell Because what they expected the Messiah to be and do is not what he came to be and do, or not at least in the manner they expected it. I mentioned Isaiah 61 that talks about the Messiah, and some verses in that section talk about how the Messiah will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. The Messiah will lead to the building up of the ancient ruins, 
the Messiah shall lead to the raising up of the former devastations. So they will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. So for the Jews, what they thought is that this Messiah is going to come, and he is going to be a military figure. He's going to conquer whoever is oppressing us, in this case Rome. And he's going to lead us so that now we have all the wealth and splendor that we used to have. So Jesus doesn't want them to tell that he's the Messiah, because if he does, people will start taking up arms. They'll start taking up weapons, going, all right, the Messiah is here to lead us in a military conquest. And then Jesus might be arrested for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus is coming to conquer, but not through military might. Rather, he explains in verse 22 that he is going to conquer through his suffering. You know, a suffering Messiah was a contradiction in terms for them. As one man says, it's like talking about delicious vomit or clean dirt. Well, those things don't go together. A suffering Messiah, now that's not what the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah is supposed to be a conquering Messiah. And yet Jesus is showing that he conquers through suffering. And he uses his favorite term for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And Son of Man is a term referring to a representative of humans. You know, we live in a representative form of government. We elect a man or woman to go and represent us, either down in Austin or in Washington, D.C. And they are supposed to let others know what we as a community think should happen. They vote for us and speak for us. They represent us. Well, Jesus is not one political representative among many. Jesus came to represent us before our Creator, our Sustainer, our Judge, before God. But for Jesus to represent us, He has to do four things And he goes into this in verses 22. He talks about how he will suffer. You know, we focused on that this week, how he was betrayed by his friend, how he was brutally beaten, how he was unjustly condemned and killed. Second, he was going to be rejected by the religious leaders, the elders, the high priests and scribes. Now, this is odd because, again, this is the Messiah. He's supposed to come and the nation's supposed to be coming behind them, rejoicing. And yet, it's not the unclean, unrighteous Gentiles who are going to reject Jesus. It's the Jewish leaders who are going to reject him. Not only that, they're going to kill him. Thirdly, you know, in their hatred, in their lust for power, in their self-righteousness, they're going to kill the very Messiah for whom they should be longing and hoping for. And yet, Jesus doesn't stop at this point. He's not just coming to suffer, be rejected, and killed. If he stopped there, there'd be no hope. If he stopped there, his mission would have been a failure. As well, we have to remember that this is well before Jesus' death. So when he was betrayed and condemned, it's not as though he was falling back to plan B. This was his plan all along, and he's revealing it to his disciples. Thus, fourthly, Jesus foretells that on the third day, he will rise again. Because it's in his resurrection that Jesus will have fully paid the price for our sins. Jesus says it this way in Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows that every single person has rebelled against and rejected God. Maybe not in a clear, fist-shaking defiance of God. Yet each of us wants to rule and reign in our own life. 
to have no one else, not even God, tell us what to do. You know, if we're honest, there are times when we don't want what God wants, where we want to go with our thoughts and our desires and our actions. And God declares that the just judgment for that rebellion is sin and is death because of our sin. And so Jesus came as a representative. He planned to suffer. He planned to be rejected. He planned to be killed, taking the punishment we deserve, taking our place, giving his life as a ransom, a payment that we just mentioned, so that we wouldn't receive God's judgment. We would receive God's love. So Jesus gives his life that we might have life, because life comes through death. And so Jesus did come as a Messiah, to conquer. But he didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He came to deliver them from a greater enemy than Rome, from death. This Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and following, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Josh McDowell illustrates what I've been trying to say very well. He tells of an incident, true incident, that happened in California some years ago. A young woman was caught speeding, and she went before the judge, and the judge looked down from his bench and said, guilty or not guilty? And the woman looked up and said, guilty. So the judge took his gavel, struck it, and said, guilty. And then a fascinating thing happened. The judge stepped back, took off his robe, walked down below the bench, pulled out his wallet, and paid the fine. Well, what was happening? Well, the judge was also the woman's father. And because he was a just judge, he couldn't just look down and go, well, you're my daughter, so we're going to let this one go. It's no big deal. But because he loved his daughter, he wasn't going to make her pay. So he gave her the judgment she deserved, but then he went and paid for it himself. It's a small picture of what Jesus came to do. He could not and did not just say, well, they're my children. It's no big deal. So he doesn't brush our sin aside, but neither does he go, well, I'm just going to let them get what they deserve. He came and paid for it himself. And so we see here that Jesus gives his life so that we might have life. But it's not just enough to know who Jesus is and what he did. We need to respond. And that's what verses 23 through 27 show Because they show us that life comes in likewise suffering and dying. And Jesus opens up in verse 23. If anyone would come to me. Anyone. Not just my disciples. Not just Jews. Not just rich. Not just males or not just females. Anyone can come. And Jesus says if they come they must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Now Jesus' words here are beginning to get a little uncomfortable. Maybe a little un-American. Because We're all about self, indulging ourselves. We don't like to deny ourselves. We should express ourselves, we say. You should love ourselves. We should have self-esteem. And Jesus' words here of self-denial may seem more like death to us, not life. And so if we're thinking Jesus' words sound like death, then we're actually understanding the point, because that's what he says next. You have to take up his cross. Now, for the disciples this would have been extremely bizarre. A cross was the most brutal form of punishment that the Romans would use. Only the worst of condemned criminals could even have this punishment given to them. You know, it was a declaration 
that they are condemned people. And yet Jesus is telling his disciples this bizarre thing that they must take up their cross, his cross, and follow him. You know, we must die, he's saying, to the parts of our life that deserve punishment. In other words, we must put to death the sinful desires to rule our own lives. See, there's really only two places Jesus is saying we can be. We can be on the throne, ruling our life, or we can put ourselves on the cross, dying to ourselves and putting him on the throne. We can't be in both at the same time. We're either submitted to him on the cross, saying our life is given to follow you, or we can say on the throne ourselves. Now, for the disciples, this was not just a strong metaphor. Six of them would personally be crucified following Jesus and their allegiance to him and that he rose from the dead. Four of them, because they continued to proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God who rose from the dead, would be killed with weapons, either swords or spears or arrows. One would be stoned to death. Now, this in and of itself is not proof that the resurrection of Jesus really happened but it sure is a strong indicator of it. You know, many people have died for lies, but they didn't know they were dying for a lie. They thought it was true. But if the resurrection is a hoax, if it was a legend that grew over time, these disciples would have been the ones who would have known this is actually not true. We just made this up so we could get power. And yet all of them, except the Apostle John, died for this. They died all the way, even until brutal death because they believed Jesus really did rise again. And yet Jesus is not just saying this is a call for end of life martyrdom because he says to do this daily. Every day we must put sin to death and put Christ on the throne of our life. Greg Morse writes, sin is not a pet to be walked several times a week. It is a lion, a wolf, a bear. It bites and hunts at will. Sin cannot be trained, bridled, or domesticated. Cannot be rescued, rehabilitated, or redeemed. Sin will never wear a color, stick to its kennel, or cease clawing at your throat. You know, Jesus' graphic words show that sin can't be treated lightly. You know, Greg Morse goes on, he highlights how in C.S. Lewis' book, The Abolition of Man, he uses this illustration, he uses a story. There's a ghost who was a man, and he's right outside the gates of heaven, and he can't get in. Because he wants to hang on to this pet sin. It's a lizard on his shoulder. And as he's there, the ghost is kind of talking to the lizard, the pet lizard, and trying to get him to be quiet. And an angel comes up and said, Would you like me to kill the lizard? Or sorry, would you like me to take care of him? And the ghost, uh, the ghost says, Sure, that'd be great. And then the angel comes forward and says, Let me kill him. The ghost replies, Oh, oh. Hold on, you're kind of burning. Can you keep away? And the angel replies, well, don't you want him killed? Well, the ghost replies, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant for anything so drastic to be done. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were very close to the ghost. Shall I kill it? The ghost replies, well, there, there's time for that later. There is no time. I must kill it. Please, I didn't really mean to be a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. It's going to sleep on its own. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks so very much. May I kill it? 
Honestly, I don't really think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process will be much better than killing it. And the angel replies, the gradual process is of no use at all. You know, Jesus had to die and rise again to pay the penalty for our sin. And he calls us to daily crucify those sins in our life that are denying him. And we are to enthrone him. And so we need to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves in thinking that what Jesus means here by denying ourselves is let's give up some luxuries. We'll take a less of a vacation. We won't have chocolates this week. When he says take up our cross, it's not just meaning, well, I have a cold this week. That's my cross to bear. The cross means we must be killing our revenge and living to forgiveness. It means slaying our love for gossip and living a new life that extends grace. It's crucifying our coldness and indifference to those around us and being resurrected to love and care. It's murdering our instinct to bend the truth just a little to help us appear better and being resurrected to trust our lives with Jesus and being honest even when we think it might hurt us. And in each of those situations, it might seem like I'm going to die. If I really tell these people the truth, they're going to hate me. That's going to kill part of my life. And yet he's saying life always comes through death. Dying to ourselves is not going to crush us. And we know that's true because Jesus dying did not leave him in the grave. He rose again. Thus, following Jesus is more than accepting him into your heart, whatever that might mean anyways. It's more than a recognition that, well, I've done some bad things and I need someone to forgive me. It's more than a profession that, yeah, I believe Jesus died for people's sins. Following Jesus means a daily trusting him, enthroning him, and thus putting to death what would like to dethrone him, our sin. Yet all of this, again, may seem rather stark, like this is death, not life. But in verse 24, Jesus goes on to say, but whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus knows that's what we might think. And he's saying, no, calculate it out. Calculate it out the way you might an investment. For investments, you go, well, we could keep going out to eat at nicer restaurants now. We could take a bigger vacation now. Or we could put some away in retirement. We could put some in savings because we know sacrificing now is going to lead to a greater reward in the future. And Jesus is saying, sacrifice. It is a cost. Sacrifice to living and enjoying life now. He even says, gaining the whole world knowing that there's a much greater treasure to come. You may have heard of Dr. Livingston, David Livingston. He went and served in the Africas as a missionary in the 1800s. And famously, he was approached by Henry Stanley, a New York Herald writer, and saying, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Well, there he lived and he served, giving up many of the pleasures of England. And he said this about it. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. He's saying compare. He's basically 
living out Jesus' words. Consider life now or life eternally. Yes, it's a death, but death leads to life is what Jesus is saying. Now, we got to be clear here. Jesus is not saying, okay, in order to earn my salvation, in order to earn my favor, you got to start suffering. you got to start doing all these things for me. The order is important. Jesus died for us and then says, as you follow me, show that following, show that trust by being willing to give up your life. This isn't just true of religion or Jesus. This is true of anyone. Anything you really love, you sacrifice for. You know, a young man wants to be an actor. He wants to be a star. And so what does he do? He sells his possessions. He moves to Hollywood. He lives in a much worse place than he ever could have lived in, at least Wichita Falls. He gives up all these things. He gets a poor job. Why? Because this is worth giving up because I could be a movie star. And we could go through lots of other illustrations where people sacrifice good now for something that is good later. So what are you sacrificing for? Because we all make sacrifices. Is what you're sacrificing for going to live beyond this life? Jesus says sacrifice to the things that are only here and now. Gaining this world because there is another world to come. So is it suffering or is it joy to follow Jesus? Yes, it's both. It's a suffering sacrifice that brings joy both here and now. And yet this message is so important that God gave extra validation to it. And we see that in the last section in verses 28 through 36. Divine affirmation of Jesus in the path of suffering. Because a few days after this, Jesus takes up Peter, John, and James. They go up on a mountain and he begins to pray. However, while Jesus prays, the disciples fall asleep. Now this might be some of your verses for the week. As you go in and out of deep sermon comatose, you're thinking, ah, whew, at least three apostles couldn't stay awake during a time of prayer. And as your chin goes down again, you can think, whew, it's not just me. But here, they're missing out on glory. So wake up. There's glory happening before their eyes, but their lids are down in front of it. Because as they're sleeping, the appearance of Jesus' face changes. His clothes become radiantly white like lightning. And this event is called the transfiguration because Jesus' body and his clothing are transfigured. And not only does his appearance change, but he starts talking to two men. And these aren't any ordinary men. This is Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great prophet who had led the people out of Egypt. Moses, through whom the law had given. Moses, the man, the great prophet who was foretold that another prophet like him would arise. Elijah, probably the second greatest prophet in the Old Testament. The prophet who was foretold that he would return. And then after him, the Messiah would come. And so they're here, and in verse 31, it says they're talking about his departure. Now I wonder if in your version it said departure. If you have an English Standard Version, there's actually a footnote. And then it says in Greek, if you transliterate it, the word is exodus. Jesus is talking about his exodus that is about to happen at Jerusalem. You know, Israel's exodus from Egypt brought God's people from physical bondage of slavery. Jesus' exodus in Jerusalem will bring release from spiritual bondage, spiritual freedom from sin. Because Jesus is going to pay the penalty 
for their sin. He's going to pay so that the power of sin can slowly be crucified in our life, as we discussed. And lastly, he paid that the presence of sin will completely be eradicated when he comes again. And here on this mountain, Jesus is discussing with these two men how his death, his resurrection, his exodus will be the one that was foreshadowed by Israel's exodus from Egypt. What a conversation. What a thing to listen in on. Better than any sermon. And yet, what are the disciples doing? They're over there sleeping. They don't even know what's going on. But they wake up and we only came up with Jesus and now there's two more and he's gloriously white. And so Peter says, Master, it's good. We are here. We'll make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now Luke tells us, Peter only says this because he doesn't know what he's saying. Here, as many have noted, it's better to be a fool who remains silent than open your mouth and remove all doubt. You know, Peter here is making at least three errors. First, is it really that good that Peter is there? Peter's a lot like us. He's very me-centric. Well, it's good that I got to see this. Well, yes, Jesus brought up people so there would be witnesses, but Peter, it really doesn't matter if it's you. It really doesn't matter if it's me. It's not about us. Second, why the tense? Well, Israel every year had a festival called the Tabernacle, the Feast of Booze, where they would set up tents. And what was that point? They were remembering the Exodus from Egypt. Peter is thinking back about the Exodus. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not that Exodus. You should be looking ahead to the Exodus that I'm going to have. And lastly, I wonder, is Peter not so subtly remembering that conversation a few days before where glory is going to come through suffering and death. But I kind of like this glory up here on the mountain. Can we stay up here a lot longer? Because once we go down the mountain, that's when we got to go through that suffering and all that. Let's just stay up here. That's a lot better. And yet, Jesus is showing us over and over in this passage that life comes through death. Well, Jesus doesn't answer Peter. Rather, this cloud comes down and overshadows them. You know, this glory cloud. It's the cloud that came down in Exodus on the tent of meeting. It's the cloud that came down on Solomon's temple as it's dedicated. The word overshadowed is the same word for when Mary conceived in the beginning of Luke when God came down. In other words, God is displaying with this cloud that his glory, his favor, his presence is with Jesus. And that's just not seen through metaphor and cross-reference. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, disciples, especially you, Peter, stop talking. Listen. He is going to instruct you what this is about. Listen to him. He has and he will explain to you that life is going to come through suffering and death. Now consider what an encouragement this must have been to Jesus. This affirmation. You know, we so quickly forget Jesus' humanity that we don't consider how maybe he was wrestling with this too. Is it really true that life is going to come through death? Am I really the son of God or am I kind of one of those crazy people? Is this really who I am? Is this really the mission? You are my son. 
my chosen one. You can almost feel the emotional comfort as the Father speaks these words of affirmation and approval. And he says, yes, I'm not crazy. It is true. Life is going to come through death. I am not just a mere man. I am the Son of God. Yes, this is a hard path, but this is the one we've agreed upon. And so here, the transfigurations in God's words are confirming God the Father's love of Jesus and His mission. A mission that has been divinely approved. And so just as God set Moses apart through a mountaintop meeting, as He set Elijah apart through a mountaintop meeting, He now sends Jesus forward to the cross, to His resurrection, having given approval on the mountain. And as we have noted throughout, these words aren't arbitrarily chosen. Listen to Him. It's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 18.15 of the greater prophet that, who is to come. So the people weren't wrong to say that Jesus was a prophet, but they didn't realize that he was more than a prophet. He's also the Messiah. He's also God's son. You know, the glory that Jesus had, this was not something the Father gave to him. This was the glory that Jesus always had, but as it talks about in Philippians 2, he emptied himself of. It's as though the curtain was pulled back for a time and all of Jesus' real glory was emanating out. You know, the glorious God, though, didn't come down to flaunt his glory. He robed it and gave up his glory so that we might have life eternally. And so after the voice speaks, Jesus is then alone with the disciples. It's really a great picture of what's going to happen to all of us. One day, each one of us will be alone with Jesus, the Savior and Judge. Who do the disciples now say that Jesus is? Who do you say that He is? Do your actions show that He is the risen Son of God in whom you trust? Are you denying yourself daily, dying to self and enthroning Him? Who do you truly see Jesus to be? You know, Gene Weingarten writes, on Friday, January 12, 2007, at 7.51 in the morning, a fairly nondescript young man in jeans and long-sleeved t-shirt opened up a violin case at a train metro station in Washington, D.C. He threw a couple dollars in the case and began to play. Over the course of the next 43 minutes, he performed six pieces, and 1,097 people passed by. In the time that he played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance at least for a minute. 27 gave money, most of them on a run, for a total of $32 in change. That leaves the 1,070 people who hurried by oblivious, many only three feet away, few even turning to look. What they were oblivious to was that the man playing was Josh Bell, the world-renowned violinist playing with all his heart six of the greatest classical pieces of all time on his $3.5 million dollar Stradivari violin. Just nights before, tickets to his concert, the cheapest tickets had been $100 per seat. However, barely anyone even noticed. Only one person completely stopped and looked at it and took it all in. Why was it? The excellence and beauty were right there before them, and they didn't even notice. Josh Bell himself found it rather odd. Reflecting later, said, it was really a rather strange feeling that people were actually, uh, the word doesn't come easily, ignoring me. 
the only person who did stop and listen said, it was the most astonishing thing I'd ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping and not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! Well, the greatest of all greatness is Jesus coming down, giving up all his glory to go give his life on a cross. How do you respond? You know, I often wonder if my response isn't much like the people leaving the metro station. Ah, that was nice. Here's a quarter. That's great. I've noticed you. You're there. Greatness is in front of you. Who do you see? How do you respond? This is the risen, glorious Son of God who came to give His life for you. Who do you see? Let's pray. Lord, would you give us eyes? Lord, so often we look around and we think, this is going to give me life. This is going to give me joy. This is what is worthy of me giving my life to. And yet, Lord, we often are missing out on the greatest of all, you. And that you would give your only son. And that he didn't just give himself, but he rose again, giving new life. Lord, we delight in him today and ask that you would give us a greater delight each day that we would follow him with all of our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen.